You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. I want to welcome you back to The Way Home Podcast, my friends. I'm glad that you are listening and enjoying, and I hope this series of podcasts we've been doing has been helping you get through these strange and interesting times that we are in in 2020 and uh, in this country. Before we get to our conversation, I just want to tell you about two important things. Uh, one, my new book, Away With Words, Using Our Online Conversations for Good, is out and available wherever you buy books. Perhaps you've, you're reading it now. If you are, I'd love to uh, hear what you think about it and possibly write a review on Amazon. But if you have not gotten it, you can go to awaywithwordsbook.com and there's links to all your favorite retailers, Amazon, Christian Book, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and don't forget independent bookstores. It's all available there. Would love for you to pick up a copy of that. Also, I would love for you to sign up for my newsletter. It's called One Little Word, and it goes out about every two weeks. And I have fresh content in there that you haven't found anywhere. Original stuff, not found any of my articles or book chapters or anything like that. And I talk about all sorts of things from history to ideas on leadership, to some things I'm learning in the scriptures, kind of an eclectic collection of ideas that I'll send out in there. Also, you'll get updates on my latest projects and links to my latest work, wherever it is around the web or publications and what I'm reading. I'll put in there the books that are on my book stack. So if you like that sort of thing, please go to my website, danieldarling.com and sign up for one little word. I'd love to have you as part of that community. We have a treat in store today because I have David French on the podcast. I'm sure you've heard that name and you've probably read his articles. David French is a religious liberty attorney who's worked for a long time for places like Alliance Defending Freedom, other places securing religious liberty on college campuses. He's a veteran of the war in Iraq, served his country, and is a prolific writer. For many years, I've read his stuff at National Review, and of course now he's at The Dispatch, and I highly recommend subscribing and reading his work at The Dispatch. What I like about David French is he's a straight shooter, so he will call it like he sees it. You will not always agree with his take, but he calls it like he sees it. He's a faithful Christian who really tries to apply the Bible to what he is talking about. He almost nearly ran for president in 2016 before deciding not to, but he has a new book out called Divided We Fail. And one of the things that has really disturbed David French is the division in our country. And I ask him a lot of questions about that. I've I've been grieved by it as well. I don't think this is the most divisive time in American history. If you look back, the 1960s, you look back to the Civil War era and some other times, I think it was more divisive. However, there's it's a different time because we have social media and we have kind of a news ecosystem that where we all sort of get news in our own bubble. So I asked David about all sorts of these things and more. Uh, he's a fascinating figure, someone whose opinion I highly value and someone who I read regularly, whether or not I agree with him. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation with my good friend, David French. I'm glad to have on the podcast, my friend, uh, David French from The Dispatch, from National Review, author of a brand new book. David, uh, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. 
So David, I want to talk to you before we talk about the topic of your book. I just want to say I've been reading you for a number of years. And uh, the last few years, I basically have said to myself, I'm not going to have an opinion about this thing I don't understand until I read David French. So <laughs> how does it feel to be the guy that people think that about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my sympathies. on feeling that, no, it, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, we're living in this time where there are so many competing voices and so much of a premium on the immediate hot take that it is that that i think you know there's just a crying need right now for people to press the pause button uh to sometimes to stay in their lane yes you know to to speak only about things that they know about have studied sufficiently to to speak about and also to not give in to sort of the 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 constant pressure to catastrophize everything yes and and so I, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, that someone asked me uh, once, what's the hardest thing about your job? And I said, I think it's all those things Yeah. <laughs> that you, you want to be in a position where, uh, where you resist, you're in a position where you resist the temptation to speak about those things that you don't know about. Uh, you want to, you resist the temptation to not say something before your thoughts are fully formed and you have to resist the temptation not to give in to the hysteria of the moment. I think that's the hard thing about our jobs. And I'm very blessed. I'm super blessed to work with the dispatch where that's sort of kind of our mission statement Yeah, is to, to press pause, to wait, to think things through before we speak. And I'm just really grateful to be in that sort of work culture. Yeah, I, I really like the dispatch. I like what you guys are doing. I mean, I don't know that I always, I don't ever agree on every single thing that's published. You probably don't agree on every single thing that's published. Oh, the sure. Dispatch. Especially the things we publish that disagree with me. <laughs> right. And what I like <laughs> about what you guys are doing there, and it's so hard to find, David, is just people who write for the dispatch and work are conservative, like me. But to find people willing to just tell me what's going on and call balls and strikes in a way that is, you know, there's, there's not an, a lot of incentive right now to do that. Right. I mean, so much of the news and what we read is filtered or, or just so kind of tainted by just heavy bias in either way. And in, in sort of like our, um, our news bubbles. Like I feel like we're in uh, a news, you know, there's, there's different news bubbles that people get in. Yeah. And I just love the fact that you're doing that. I also respect you, David, because you, I've, our conservative who's obviously taken a position that you're not going to vote for Trump. You're not a Trump supporter. And yet you are willing to call balls and strikes on that in a way that very few, whether pro Trump or anti Trump folks have done in, in the sense that if there's an administration policy, that's really good. You're you'll praise it. If, if it's not, you'll, you won't. Uh, and to maintain that political integrity, that's gotta be hard to do. Well, you know, I think one of the things that I, I, I so I'm conservative but I've people have tried to ask me what what are you know what okay so you're conservative does that mean you're a, a Republican who's temporarily a Democrat or does that mean you're a, a now you're going to be with the Libertarian Party now are you going to be what team are you going to be on I think the way I've I've started to describe it is I've taken off the red jersey and I haven't put on another one and it's not nonpartisan in a way it's kind of postpartisan. Because I really don't see myself putting on another political jersey uh, anytime here in the future. 
and I think there's a lot of value in the work that I do in taking that position because the instant you put on a jersey is the instant you it's it's there's almost like this sort of the psychological force that is put upon you to say you can't be objective because object objectivity is a betrayal that if i say hey you guys i think you guys did this wrong then you're undermining your team and you're giving aid and comfort to the opponent and if you're not partisan if you're if you've and the reason i say postpartisan is cuz uh i've been partisan mm-hmm. <laughs> and so i'm af- i'm past that when you're not partisan you don't have that emotional investment in sort of the team concept yeah you have investment in ideas you certainly have investment in truth you have an investment in justice you know that but the investment in the team and the jersey uh, you know, I'll I'll leave that for you know the the NBA and college football, but that I think that's something that also in the dispatch that that view is sort of widely held because a lot of us are what you would call postpartisan that we 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 have not put we've taken off one jersey and we've not put on another jersey and I think it really helps us do our jobs. Yeah, that's good, and I I like the fact that you have been writing a lot more about religion and about your Christian faith with your Sunday columns. Uh, and is that something you've always wanted to do, or is that sort of something that has bubbled up in you in the last year or so where you're like, you know, I really, this is a side of, not that you were hiding the fact that you were a Christian all this time, right. but you, you, you obviously are talking more about it in, in more personal ways. Is that just kind of something you felt like you've wanted to, you've always wanted to do that you had to kind of hide when you were, when it was, you know, it's all politics all the time, or is it just like, what motivated you to do that? Yeah, so uh, it's kind of a, or it was an organic process that I've written a lot about faith when I was at National Review, but my job at National Review is just a little bit different. At NR, I was responding more to the news of the day. So I was writing more frequently in shorter pieces. And so you're, you're kind of driven by the news cycle. And when the news cycle veered into a religious topic, you know, I'd be on it. I'd be on yeah. top of it, but I was much more focused on the news of the day. I write less frequently, but longer pieces for the dispatch. And those were more focused on uh, kind of a broader view. But the Sunday newsletter, that was actually Steve Hayes's idea. He said, there's just not enough writing in, you know, the mainstream media from A, that A, takes faith seriously, that B, has knowledge about faith, and C, from people of faith. And so uh, that was Steve's idea, that Sunday newsletter, and I was all about it. As soon as Steve said it, I I thought, yeah, I totally want to do that. And I can't even tell you the response. The response has been overwhelming. I mean, just overwhelming. It really has. And, you know, one of the things that I I like about it for a few reasons, I think there's not, we need more good religion coverage. You know, people who understand the nuances of religion but also just kind of long form. Do you like writing longer form and writing less than just kind of write? Like, do you like this kind of writing more than the quick oh, burst? So much more, so much more. And I think actually longer writing is more necessary now, you know, because we're dealing with very complicated issues in a very troubled time. And one of the things, it is very difficult. It's extremely difficult to provide a 
fair treatment of a complex issue in a short in a in a piece that has really strict word limits on it and and look i know full well that the every word that you add above that that 700 or 800 words you're diminishing your audience i know that but also at the same time we're writing for our audience at the dispatch we're writing for leaders the people who read what we write are folks who are leaders in their community who are leaders in the church and who are really hungry for and looking for in-depth treatment of of uh of really complicated subjects and so i feel like we kind of have a you know, we we have a, a real obligation to these readers to be as thorough as we can be and so whether you read our political coverage where my podcast co-host sarah isger writes in the sweep or our um, national security coverage with Tom Jocelyn, or our economic co- coverage with Scott Lincecum, it's thorough. It's thorough, and and there's just a hunger for it out there. Honestly, one one of the things that we keep getting from people is a, this sense of thank you, thank you for treating this seriously and for treating opposing arguments fairly, and and I think that's just a very important part of sort of navigating through these troubled times is these things are complicated and what we do not need is a quick hit uh reaffirmation of our existing priors <laughs> that's kind of the last thing we need i agree with that have you been surprised by the the response to to the dispatch you know obviously there's that new york times article out last week about uh the success i'm i was one of the initial subscribers proud to say because I yes. really resonated with what you and, and Jonah and Steve were trying to do and whether you could pull it off, it's got to be heartening to say, okay, there's an audience for this. And do you think this is a trend? I mean, that, that, was, that piece was part of an overall piece, which I thought was very good about how, you know, the subscription model is kind of a way that a lot of some journalism is going these days. And it seems yeah. like, it seems like in that model, you can kind of, in some ways, cool the temperature and do more thoughtful yeah. stuff. Well, you know how um, a lot of very big and important cultural developments sort of happen accidentally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we sort of stumble yes. into nation-changing trends. And, I, you know, if you look back to the dawn of the internet, there was this sort of idealism about the internet that said, this is the portal of all kinds of free information. This is where everything is free. And so early on, all of these newspapers that received, that were you know, the media for years and years and years was a subscription model. Yeah. <laughs> like you didn't read Absolutely. when I grew up in Kentucky, you didn't read the Lexington Herald leader unless you bought a copy of the paper or you subscribe to it. And so, but then all of a sudden the internet comes and all of that content that is produced at great cost is put up free. The norm is established that for some reason, if it's a hard copy of something, I feel like I should pay for that. But if it's on my computer screen, I feel like I shouldn't pay for it. And it decimated the media, yeah. uh, the print media in particular. And then it created these perverse incentives that, well, if the only way that you can make money is through ads, but the ad dollars are so small, so tiny, that virality is the only way to make that economical. Well, then how do you achieve virality? Well, you achieve virality through outrage, you achieve virality through um, crudity, you know, you achieve virality through lasciviousness, you achieve virality through all of these things that are not conducive 
to good journalism. And so, you know, it, it's really interesting to me. It's sort of like how you have the landslide that, that begins with a pebble bouncing down the hill. You know, the pebble bouncing down the hill was, hey, you know, in this this new medium that very few people have in their homes, let's make this information free, turns into, well, let's decimate the revenue model of a big chunk of our media, which turns into the only way to make money is is outrage and virality, which turns into the raw sewage that just spews into our social media feeds Yeah, every day of the week. Yeah. And I would argue, and this leads to us talking about the substance of your book, but I would argue that in all the chaos and all the sort of dysfunction we're seeing in the world, the emergence of these kind of subscription model forms of media are telling us that people still want a trusted gatekeeper, a trusted institution. Because really, like, yeah, when you would you subscribe to the Dispatch or you subscribe to some other newsletter model and pay for it, Andrew Sullivan or whatever, or you know, people yeah. still purchase you know subscriptions to magazines like the Atlantic or whatever. You're not necessarily subscribing to news because you can always get news. What you're saying mm-hmm. is, I trust these people to curate it in a way that I can understand it. I trust this institution to get it right. Does that make sense? And so it's also yeah. kind of an investment in an institution. That should give you a little bit of hope about kind of where where things are and where some of the hunger is for, for that kind of uh, institution building. Absolutely. And we've been more successful, thank God, than we have planned to be by orders of magnitude. And there's another thing that the subscription model does is that I think it creates a very healthy relationship between writer and readers. Mm. It creates an actual relationship. You, When somebody is paying for your content, you feel a sense of real obligation to those people to produce something of really high quality. If you're just sort of spewing your words out there, you don't, you don't have quite the same relationship with the readers. The readers aren't so much readers as commenters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the the subset of people who who jump onto your articles and and you know give you speak back to you with their thoughts. But when you when you have these subscribers, when you have these members, it really creates a, this sort of tangible. You have put trust in me by shelling out you know ten dollars a month or a hundred dollars a year. That's our you know, and I have an obligation to you. I I. I owe you the value of what you've paid and then some. Yeah. And I think it creates a, a very healthy relationship and a healthy dynamic. Yeah. And I would say that it, it reflects what I think is a, an ingrained human desire for institutions, even though we, we act mm-hmm. all inst- institution, anti-institutional, we really actually want institutions uh, that can, can help us flourish. So let's talk about the substance of your book. You've been talking sure. about this for a bit, and I know even in some private conversations and things like talking to you that you have been very worried about the polarization in our country. You're not the only one. I think a lot of people are talking about it, and I'm concerned as well. In in the book, obviously, you you talk about some worst case scenarios, right? That yeah, it, where all this could lead, but obviously, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, I, I guess I first want to start with with this. Uh, I read a ton of history, as I know you do. I mean, I love presidential biographies. Mm-hmm. I love American history. There's a part of me that says this is the most divided we've been in a long time. There's another part of me that says, man, I'm reading through all these periods in American history. The 60s and 70s were awful. Obviously, we had a civil war. 
the, the early 1920s were bad. There was other points. Where do you plot this year, 2020, in those years in terms of severity? I mean, bad. Uh, so I, so let me put it like this. One of the things that we we often have a recency bias where we say, okay, these things are as bad as they've ever been or worse than they've ever been. And most of the time when we say that, that's not true, that things have been worse in the past. We've been more divided in the past. And we have gone through a lot of crises. I mean, if you follow American history closely, you know that you know we split off from England in 1776. By, 18, by the election of 1800, we were at each other's throats uh, in the election of 1800, just at each other's throats. In the War of 1812, there was an immense amount of American division. You know, we had to have Missouri Compromise, Compromise of 1850, all of these various compromises that kept this country together until it couldn't stay together in 1860, 1861. And then we think, well, then everything sailed forward from there. No, the election of 1876 was incredibly contentious. And it's, you know, people forget how violent the 60s were. I mean, we had sometimes two and three domestic bombings a day in the 19, in 1968. And so this nation is what has felt inevitable of a big united nation has at multiple points in our history, history been kind of, has been up for grabs. <laughs> and one of the things that I did when I started to, see the rising American polarization. And it's absolutely at this point, undeniably just the facts that Americans are more polarized than they've been since the 1960s, as mm -hmm. far as just the sheer, and even more polarized in very important ways than they were in the 1960s. In the 1960s, there was still a big American middle that could sort of come in like a tidal wave in the 72 election, 49 states for Nixon, 84 election, 49 states for Reagan. There was sort of an, an ability of an American consensus to emerge. And, and right now, what we have is in vastly increasing polarization at the same time that we have increasing geographic clustering. So people are more likely to live around individuals of like mind than since we've been measuring this in the modern era. Religious fragmentation to a degree that we've never had before uh, where a rise between of of a huge gulf between secular and religious American citizens were sort of the more nominal uh, religious folks, the kinds of, you know, what you might call the Christmas and Easter Christians mm -hmm. are kind of falling out of the American society. And what we now have is people of no particular affiliation and people of devout affiliation existing side by side, but clustering geographically as well so that you have very secular parts of the country and you have very religious parts of the country. And then you have the fragmentation of media so that there is no real common culture, even down to sports with the exception of the NFL, which is increasingly politically contentious. But you can watch, you can look at viewing maps of different shows and you will see that uh, there are certain shows that, what, that Red America watches. There are certain, certain shows that Blue America watches. And, and what I have say in the book and argue in the book is there's no single, all the result of all of this is there's no single important cultural, religious, social, or political force that's pulling us together more than it's pushing us apart. And a nation cannot keep doing that, especially when you overlay on top of it animosity and rage and hatred. You cannot keep doing that indefinitely and stay together. Mm. That defies sort of all of the laws of human nature and it defies what we know about nations throughout history.
one of the things I've tried to do in my pastoral ministry is encourage people to go to counseling, whether you're feeling depressed or struggling with anxiety, or maybe just working through a difficult relationship issue in your marriage or with your children. Counseling is really important. This is why I'm very excited about my friends at Faithful Counseling. What I like about Faithful Counseling is that you can go online to the website and you can fill out a form with some really good questions and they will match you up within 24 hours with a counselor suited to your needs. This is counseling that is biblical, that also understands the the clinical and chemical sides of what ails us and what plagues us as as people. And it's fully confidential. One of the things I like about online counseling is that sometimes there's a stigma for us to get in our car and go to a office building or inside a church that sometimes is a barrier for us to go get help, the help that we need. We feel like we're performing in front of somebody or letting people know that we have an issue. With faithful counseling, online counseling, uh, you'll be matched up with a counselor within 24 hours. If you don't like the counselor that you've been matched up with, you can change with, with no charge. And it's all in the confidentiality of your own home. You also have 24-hour access to your counselor and you'll get responses uh, within 24 to 48 hours. I just really think this is a great resource. So if you are someone that really knows that you need to go get some counseling or you want to talk with somebody about a situation in your family, in your life, please check out my friends at Faithful Counseling. Go to faithfulcounseling.com slash way home. That's faithfulcounseling.com slash way home. And if you do that, you'll get a 10% off discount on your first month. But please do check out faithfulcounseling.com slash way home. It seems to me there's like perverse incentives for polarization of the social media algorithms, the media. And when I say the media, I mean all forms of media, left, right, and center. Mm-hmm there's incentives for polarization. I feel like this is something I felt for a long time when I think about even social media, that there's like two different news bubbles. You know, we talk a lot about the Facebook news bubble, which leans right where people are sharing stuff. And it's a, it's a problem with disinformation, which I, I do think, but I also think Twitter can be a little bit like that too. in, in terms of, you know, among sort of elite leaders and people like that, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like Twitter, Twitter to me seems like the green room, you know, before you go, you're about to about to go speak where all, all the yeah. VIPs are hanging out. And Facebook seems like the, the audience, the crowd, you know, like there's just such this disconnect. And how does that play into our polarization? You know, the, the fact that it's just really two different worlds or maybe multiple different worlds, maybe not just two. Yeah. You know, I mean, basically what you'd say is everything is right now. Um, playing into our polarization and, and every new development, like sort of every new technology, every new quirk is furthering it. So, you know, I, I've talked a lot about polarization now for, um, for years and it was, you know, people will say, well, social media is causing it. And I'd say, well, social media is making it worse. But if you look at the data, it's our, our polarization was increasing pretty heavily before social media came along. Or you might say, you know, like the, the time and time again, what, what is it? it? It's this, or it's this, or it's this. People will say it's this. And I say, no, it's all of these things. 
all of these things are operating together. And then what ends up happening is they have a mutual reinforcing effect. So uh, let's take, for example, the combination of geographic sorting plus social media. So what geographic sorting means is that we live around people of like mind. And then what social media does, is it allows us, even if we, to enhance that cocooning by our extended networks, even beyond our neighbors can become people of like mind. And then there's this phenomenon that occurs, which is uh, called group polarization. And it's a really, really key concept. And in the book, I talk about this at length. And that is when people of like mind gather, they become more extreme. And so when you're around people that you agree with, and there's nobody at the table saying, no, I don't think that's right, where you have to sort of justify your opinion, you're off to the races on doubling down on what you believe. And this is something that we're seeing. It's a huge problem in American politics is that now that because we're clustering and because we have the ability to cluster online is just as we're clustering in real, the real world, we're surrounding ourselves with people of like mind who reinforce our beliefs constantly. And so what is interesting is it used to be there was this big bell curve of American uh, ideology where there's this big middle. Remember, I just talked about how the big middle sort of came in and said 49 states for Nixon, 49 states for Bush, landslide for Clinton. Now it's flattening and it's flattening to the point where there is no big middle. We have big extremes. We have a moderate sized middle. Well, we have, really, we have kind of, um, a, they're all flattened out to where the middle and both of the extremes are getting pretty darn equivalent. And in many ways, the extremes are becoming bigger than the middle. So that bell curve is becoming more of a U and that creates an enormous amount of tension on the system. Mm. Uh, so I want to ask you a couple more questions about this. So how big of a role do you think the decline in religious fervor, the decline in church attendance plays that perhaps are we seeing that, you know, m my theory is that politics is a useful and important vehicle for human flourishing. It's the, it's the, governing of the polis of the city that's mm -hmm. important but it's it's a really poor religion it's a poor god and it seems like politics has filled that void to give people a sense of meaning and identity where religion used used to be there it, it, does that have anything to, to do with why we're more polarized yes and no so the yes is that when you have an increasing a level of religious difference in a society, then there is a ample historical evidence that that creates strains. Whether it's Sunni Shia, whether it's Catholic Protestant, you know, the Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland troubles or the, the Sunni Shia troubles that we saw in Iraq, Hindu Muslim in India. I mean, profound religious differences are difficult for societies to navigate. Uh, they just, they, they have been for a long time. And so when you have, when people say America's secularizing, mm, okay, well, yes, it is in the sense that a lot of nominals are becoming nuns, but the most devout segments of American religion are also, are actually growing in numbers. So the evangel self-described evangelicals for most years increase in numbers. So what you're ending up is with a uh, society where you have this increasing sacred secular divide. Now that's one thing. Now the, so the Christian narrative of this often is, well, those people who are nuns, because, you know, the God set eternity in the hearts of men, 
are looking for something to fill that void, that spiritual void. And so they've filled it with politics. Okay. So you have, it's kind of a convenient narrative for Christians to believe because you say, well, I, my religion is serving Jesus Christ and their religion is serving politics. But here's the thing, Dan, (laughs) I think when push comes to shove for an awful lot of people in the pews, it's their religion is politics also. Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. And I know you do because we've talked about this. And so what ends up happening is we have two political tribes, their, their religion is politics, and that they have a different sort of veneer through which they wash this religion of politics, or they view yeah. this religion of politics, a secular veneer or a religious veneer. But, you know, um, I wrote a, a Sunday newsletter. I said, I think we're dealing with sort of the rise of two fundamentalisms. Yes. A, a, a secular progressive political fundamentalism and a uh, ostensibly religious conservative political fundamentalism that is dominated by politics where the, it's a, it's a sort of a, it's politics that is kind of got dashes of religion attached to it, which increase the fervor. Um, but the real fervor is in the politics. And, and so that's what I think is a huge part of the divide. And, and the problem is when you have that religious fervor connected to politics and you, that, that is, and that, that becomes the transcendent value then that is ripe for polarization, ripe for it. And it was really interesting to me when Tim Keller wrote a New York Times article where he urged that Christians really not, that there isn't any specific partisan affiliation that should be specific to Christianity and urged sort of nonpartisanship. He got torn apart (laughs) online for having the audacity to suggest, you know, we should kind of be post-partisan or nonpartisan in the way that we approach the public school. Oh yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, because if either way you're complicit, you know, if if you're not. Mm-hmm. So I I totally agree with you, David. I mean, I that's exact. You're exactly right about this. So I, I want to ask you a couple more questions I have left uh, before we have to wrap up. But we know it's bad. We know the polarization is bad. A lot of people are concerned about it. As I think about it, I can be concerned about it, but I don't have to give in to that. So two questions. One, what can ordinary people listening do? to heal these divides. Actually, it's a three-part question. (laughs) Okay. What can ordinary people do to heal these divides? Number one. Number two, where are the places where that vast middle exists? Are there still some places where people are getting together along different lines that you see signs of hope? And number three, how important is it that leaders model, you know, a kind of civility, a kind of comedy... Because I still think leaders give what leaders do in uh, moderation, their followers do in excess. So like leaders yeah. who are willing to tell their own people, hey, let's calm down here or let's like when they model that. So that's my three part final question. <laughs> well, yeah, let me begin with number three first, because one of the arguments I make in my book is flat out. We need a better class of leaders. We need a higher character class of leaders and we need to start really placing a tremendous amount of influence uh, of importance on character in selecting our leaders. And one of the, I end with um, Micah 6.8. I end the book with Micah 6.8 as sort of a guide for what we want to see in our leaders. Uh, what does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good? It's to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before the Lord your God. And 
you know, we live in a world where the at justly part of it, or at least the tweet justly part of it is rampant. In other words, hey, this is what's right. And I'm going to argue for what's right. But the other parts, the love mercy, which is, you know, having some basic, at the very least, having some basic regard for the humanity of your political opponents and having some basic compassion for them for defending their rights, just as you would defend your own rights, that's lacking. And then especially lacking is this humility, this idea that we may not know everything. You know, these are complicated issues we're dealing with. And I actually might gain value from hearing people from the other side and they might actually teach me things or that I'm going to approach the public square for, with a posture of humility. All of those things, we should start to be putting a premium on those things in our leaders. And if we don't see it in our leaders, at least show it in yourself. We're all, whether, you know, whether, we're all leaders to some extent. They're always, if you're an adult, especially if you're a parent, you're leading some people. You may not have a public voice in the same way that a, a pundit does or a pastor does. But if you're a husband, if you're a, a, a wife, if you're a mom, if you're a dad, if you're a grandfather, or grandmother, you're a leader. And you might not have a big tribe, you might not have a lot of followers, but you're a leader. And what we need to do is take upon ourselves the responsibility to fulfill those triple interlocking obligations, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Not one of them is optional. Mm. Not one of them. So what do we need? We need a better class of leaders. If the, that class of leaders above us is lacking, we still have the responsibility with whatever kind of leadership we have to exhibit those three cardinal virtues. And so, you know, that, that sort of number three question, yeah, we, you know, if there's one thing that we are learning now is that, and this is something Christians sort of a lot of, especially white evangelicals argued extensively in the Clinton years is that there's a cultural effect of corruption and sin from leadership. It changes permission structures. It uh, alters public morality. And we're seeing this, you know, radiating out often from the flaws of the leader class in the United States is changing. You can see that people on social media and people around you adopt the same modes of communication, the same kinds of out of, of public postures, the same kinds of moral stances as the people that lead this country and that lead churches and that lead institutions. And so uh, we need a better leader class and the followers of these leaders need to hold them to it to exercise their own responsibility and whatever leadership roles that they have to act and model the values they want to see uh, across uh, the United States. And now with that rant, I forgot question two, the second. Where are you seeing oh. places where there is still Great. that vast middle? Yeah. So this is, there's actually some social science on this. So the, the More in Common Project did this really comprehensive look at what it called the hidden tribes of America. It was discontent with the sort of blunt instrument description of Americans as being either Republican or Democrat or independent and really wanted to sort of dive down into what are sort of the, the specific ways in which Americans live their lives politically and culturally. And it found multiple hidden tribes. In other words, we, you know, we don't have two, we don't have two teams. We don't even have three teams. We might have eight, nine, 10 teams, <laughs> And what it found is that, you know, ranging from right to left, depending on levels of engagement, levels of religiosity, et cetera. And what it found was that American 
political engagement is being driven by a very active minority on both the right and the left. And interestingly enough, that very active minority has a very similar demographic profile. It's disproportionately white, disproportionately wealthy, and disproportionately likely to be political hobbyists, people who sort of view following politics as almost like, you know, their hobby. And that's on the right and the left, and they are driving this train of polarization. And then what more in common found was that there was an exhausted majority. Now, that didn't mean they're all moderates. They might be politically conservative. They might be politically progressive. But temperamentally, there were a lot of commonalities. And one of the commonalities is they were alienated. They're kind of exhausted. And so, you know, the reason why this exhausted majority doesn't have a greater influence on our politics is because the, the operative word in the phrase exhausted majority is exhausted. They are passive. They're sort of being taken along for the ride and not very happy about it. And this is what I find in communications with people all the time that talk to me. They're very unhappy with how things are going, but they're passive participants. They're just on the bus and they don't like the bus, but they're on it. And so I don't think things will change until the exhausted majority, the operative word becomes majority instead of exhausted. And sometimes it takes a, a leader to motivate and to activate, or sometimes it just takes enough misery to where people say, no more, no more. And my hope is that we just don't go so far that we cross lines we can't uncross before mm -hmm. that exhausted majority wakes up. Because a motivated minority can take a country in terrible directions before a majority really exerts mm. its will. That's a great, great place to end. I want to encourage folks to get this really good book called Divided We Fail by David French. And if you're not a subscriber to The Dispatch, well, you should be, and to read <laughs> David French. But David, thank you for your your work, your, your public witness, and uh, for being a voice in these times. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this edition of the way home podcast with daniel darling for more information you can visit danieldarling.com if you do like this podcast we encourage you to subscribe on itunes or your favorite podcast catcher we also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast you can follow me at at dan darling on twitter or go to my facebook page facebook.com slash daniel m darling I also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book, Away With Words, and you can visit awaywithwordsbook.com. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast. This is a production of the National Religious Broadcasters. Church.